On today's crew call, we have filmmaker Luca Guadagnino. He has a new movie, Bones and All. It's a cannibalistic love story starring Timothy Chalamet, Taylor Russell, and Mark Rylance. Guadagnino won the Silver Lion at the Venice Film Festival, and Taylor Russell won Best Young Actress. It hits theaters on November 18th. I know that the script came to you from David. You were, it was when you were at San Sebastian uh, on the jury. But was there ever any concern about going back to horror after Suspiria? I truly did not see, read the script as a horror movie script. Mm -hmm. I mean, I might be a little bit dull, but I didn't see the, the script as, as that. Mm -hmm. In general, it would have not been a concern because I love the genre and I'm ready to do more into the genre. But in this particular case, I was more into like this idea of abandonment. I, I love the idea that there was this kind of like desolate landscape of the soul uh, for these characters and how they could find some sort of solace in the, in, in, to their pain, to the pain that comes from their abandonment, but also for, to the pain that comes from their knowledge of, their, of who they are uh, in finding one another in the case of the other. So that's how I, I, how I read the script. And I have to be candid here. Like, I read the script in, in September of 2020. Uh, and it was like a few months into the COVID disaster. Few months after my dad died. Few months after a long relationship I had that was, in a way, uh, uh, the drive of my life ended. So like all these elements, the sense of like the pandemic, this kind of apocalyptic sense of like lost control over your own life and the idea of not being anymore uh, um, with the guidance of my father in, re in, in reality and not being with the person I loved for 11 years, all that somehow resonated in a sort of unconscious way in the story of Marilyn Lee. Like, in the script and in the movie, we are talking about these young people who find in love a possibility in the impossibility and who are also are kind of haunted by what they have inside, but also by people that are around them who mostly are parenting figures, like father figures, mother figures, who are there to try to destroy them. All of these I didn't rationalize until I made the movie and I finished the movie and I showed the movie to a dear friend of mine, Carlo, and he said to me, do you know this is your, your most personal movie? And I said, and he said, like, think about it. And I really felt like, oh, wow. So to answer your question, I was maybe a little bit verbose, is the, the reasons why I decided to make their, this movie were completely uh, not linked to the idea of the genre that movie belonged to, and I wasn't scared about that at all. I went to Italy for the first time in 1988. Uh-huh. I grew up in the Northeast, not exactly where you were shooting in the flyover states, but very similar. Like, I grew up in Vermont, and it just felt like 
you could have been there shooting this in the 1980s very easily. You captured the tone of the 80s and the banality of America down to a T. I felt like you have been living here for years. Can you talk about that? How did that jump out at you? You captured that as great as in Call Me By Your Name, the Italian countryside, where we could smell everything, the flowers. We could smell the coffee. We could smell the grass in Italy. It's the same thing here. You know when you have these books, this essay on cinema, and they title like Cinema of the Senses or stuff like that? I think it's a sort of uh, a mistake. Cinema is of the senses. The actual experience, the cinematic experience, deals with how you, the audience, are asked to immerse yourself into something that you have not met in your life or that you have lost in your life or that can resonate with you about your life. So, like, as a filmmaker, that is my duty and that's that's my call of duty. Like that's what I have to do. Um, I don't take lightly the beautiful words you said. I think those mean so much to me, and I thank you very dearly for this. I, 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 I from your perspective, I succeed in this. I try, and in trying, why my mandate and the mandate I, I really give to all my collaborators is once when we do a movie in the in the past we have to make it as if we are filming then we can't put our retrospective perspective on things we can't have the idea of a decade summarized by a sort of graphic approach to that that is like a little bit cheesy and a little bit silly i think or or for music videos i think when you do a movie in set in the 80s, you have to try to make it as if you're shooting then there in the very, in the very place. So one of the things that we we realized through the work of these fantastic, wonderful, wonderful young filmmakers that I invited to be my my assistants, uh, uh, Sam Keeling and Ben Panzeca, these kids they went out in the Midwest. I gave them this uh, mandate: go out and find images of 1988 from family albums. Get back to me when you have them. So they knocked at doors and people gave them. One thing that I love about America, it's so hospitable. People are so open. And uh, also like, uh, uh, you know, like your society is not uh, led and driven by the idea of uh, society that you can find in social democracies, right? Capital is ruling and yet the sense of community that you get here is stronger than in other countries where you have actual social democracy at play or you had. Um, so they gave us tons of images, tons, uh, family albums that I must have seen like more than 10,000 of the, these images. So we, you said banality. We started to understand that there was not such a, there was, it wasn't a spectacle being in the 80s in the Midwest. It was about somehow being frozen in time between the Eisenhower era and then, and the Reagan era, there was a sort of like strange 50s to 80s trip, which Zemeckis portrayed so well then when he did the, his um, trilogy of Back to the Future, right? Uh, he linked the 50s, particularly the first, with the 80s, righteously so. Uh, 
So our idea was to respect that very deeply and to really give really uh, serious and discreet touches to the to the period, not in your face touches. I I feel though this story also speaks to today in terms of the division that's going on. Oh yeah. What did it say about the 80s of the time? I mean, the interesting thing, the fact that it's set in the 80s, is they wouldn't survive today if they were on the run. They wouldn't. TikTok, TikTok would find They wouldn't them. survive because of the technology. Yeah. But it's interesting because the 80s were a very... We were like... We were really oppressed by a sense of conformity that was very oppressive. Mm-hmm. And yet, as per John Waters... It was also a strange decade where a lot of kids in the middle of the country wanted to be cross-gender, like boy, boy George, and 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 uh, embraced black culture of Prince or Michael Jackson. Those were popular artists then. I feel like now we are somehow living a place where there is the oppression of anti-conformism, who's become the new conformist somehow. So like it's a op- almost the opposite. It's they swap trading places, those two elements, between the 80s and now. It's all, always about how majority sees uh, the difference somehow uh, and to be different. And Maren and Lee are the ultimate difference because they carry the burden of their nature in a way that cannot make them be part of anything but just their own bond. Did you shoot in natural light? Almost. Arsenic Cacciaturan, the DP, mm-hmm. 27 at the time in which we shot the movie in film. And I, we've we seen a lot of Eggleston pictures. That was our guidelines, guideline. Yeah, you don't believe the hype when people say we shot only with natural light because technology doesn't need some light. But we were kind of like low-key in the approach. Because it's gorgeous. It's, you. It, you, you capture Dawn, pristine... The sunsets, the overcast, everything is, is just... It's the beauty of America. Let's talk about Timothy for a second. You know, both of you blasted off at the same time. What does he do for the camera? What is What does the camera love Camera about loves him? him. What is it? I think camera cannot lie. Mm-hmm. And if you see someone who is so powerful on screen... That's because camera never lies, and there is no makeup, no hair, nothing that is going to make that person be strong, if not the personality of that person. Only that can. He's, you know, he's a natural. He's a a great talent. He's he's a wonderful filmmaker. He's a generous man. He's, He's graciously growing up into a man, and he's absorbing all the beauty that comes toward him, with fame, with interest from people, and is processing all of this in order to make it for himself to be even more challenged in what he does, even more surprised by what he does. He is the opposite of cynicism, Timothy. He's like one. He's a wanderer in wonderment, and I love that for him. Did you read him for "Call Me by Your Name," or what, did you just cast him no, out? No, no, no. I cast him. You just cast him out. We sat on a. We had rest. We had lunch. And uh, I was producing the movie then, and we had lunch a few years before the movie was actually made, and I felt like he's perfect for the role. So we attached him to the movie before we got, 
a final director to make the movie. Then there was a moment in which Ivory was making the movie as a director. And unfortunately, because I would have been interested to see the movie that Ivory could have made out of it, uh, that movie couldn't be made because uh, there was not a place for it in the marketplace, to be fair. And, um, but there was interest in the actual finance series on a such a much smaller movie directed by me on that, on that script or on that topic. And when I became the director, I absolutely wanted Timothy to be Elio, even though until then he was the Elio of the movie, not of me. Everyone asks you this, like, a, like asking about Star Wars sequels. Are, call me by your name. How far are you from... I the, was just talking to Pete Hammond yeah, right I, I now. I mean, everybody... And I, I give you the answer I gave him. I said, I love these characters and I love Elio Perlman very dearly. And as per Truffaut with Antoine Duanel, I would love to have a cycle of stories that kind of followed the growing up of, uh, of Elio through time, the way in which Truffaut followed the, the growing up of his uh, Antoine Duanel and Jean-Pierre Léod through decades. Why not? It would be amazing. We'll see. And would you have Army back? No questions. Well, I think for me... It's about these characters that I love. And so I would like to see all of the characters back. Now, with Bones and all, tell me more about just the draw of these two. You said you were going through you were going through a breakup and you have these two people that are so in love with each other. You know, the highest form of love is to just eat the person. Well, there is yeah. this... There is this song by Mumford, uh -huh. Cannibal, uh -huh. the first music video ever directed by Steven Spielberg, right? Uh -huh. And the first line of this, of the first lyric is something in the line of like, I love you and I want to eat you. Something like that. It's almost as banal as that. You know, when you see a little, bo a little, a little child, they say, oh, look at these cheeks. I would like to bite them. It's part of our way of expressing a sort of like deep... Uh, passion for something. I love you to death. I will. I would eat you because I love you so much. Or the metaphor of uh, the wafer in the Catholic Church, the body of Christ. It's metaphor. It's all about metaphors that uh, makes the idea of, uh, of a terminal consumption reflecting our the intensity of our passion for maybe. You know, what is wonderful is that you, uh, as an auteur, you're extremely busy. You're finishing Challengers right now. I'm sure you're about to go into pre-production on something, and we'll get to that. But, you know, there's a lot of auteurs out there. They don't have this. Their, their next film isn't getting up as fast as they want it to. Or they're immediately, and I don't want to name names, or they're immediately going to streaming. Can you talk about just getting things made, your ability to get your work out on the big screen? I'm very old-fashioned. I'm very boring. No, you're not. I no, don't not. have much of a social life. I love to work, and I work very hard every day of my life, every hour of my life. I devote myself to the idea of craft. I love the idea of craft. When I did I Am Love and then I got the beautiful reaction from this country, from Hollywood on that movie, and then it took me like six years to get 
biggest splash made, I promised myself never again that hiatus was killing me because I love to do, I'm a doer. Yeah. And because I'm old fashioned, I, I know what I like and I know what I don't like and I like uh, the cinema. I like the theatrical experience. I think also like I'm very good at convincing people. So I work a lot, I convince people and I stick to my passions, which is cinematic passion, theatrical passion. Uh, Ridley Scott taught me indirectly because I don't know Ridley Scott personally. I only briefly met and of course I, I'm in awe of his legacy. But Ridley Scott makes a movie, is shooting a movie before the previous one is released. It's a very serious lesson. Spielberg is like that too. Eastwood. But is it is it also about budget in the sense that are you a guy that while some other people might be looking to shoot a fifty million dollar film, you could do it for twenty million dollars cheaper and you're fast? Certainly I'm very fast. I'm not fussy, you know, like like um I remember I had a very dear friend who is a notable Italian filmmaker and I remember we were like in our twenties and he was he spent two years writing 15 drafts of his short film he wanted to make, the script. And I was like, why you do that? Like, I need to have all the answers on the page. But as uh, Jean Renoir would say, leave the door open to reality on set and you'll find the answers while you do it. So I'm not fussy. I, don't, I think that I hate, I'm practical. You have to be practical to make this job. Or... You may be lucky and you have people throwing money at you because of records you had made in your career and you keep doing I'm very, very, very practical. And I like to be fast because I l hate to lose time. Uh, uh, Bontenol was 40 days. Challengers was, was 37. And you'll see. Uh, uh, I don't think you need much time unless you need it. You know what I mean? Like if you have to do... Like I might do a movie that I cannot say what it is, but... I know that that movie will need 65 days. But because that movie has specific conditions of uh, representation that will need that care. Actually, no, I, I withdraw from care because all the, the other movies I do are carefully made. They will need that time. But in general, I'm fast. I hate to, to lose time. And I, I, try, I try to make things for half of the price that people usually make. All makes. virtues to getting films made on the big screen in this day and age. Yeah. Also, like, a shooting in America, it's a bit more expensive, to be honest, than mm -hmm. shooting somewhere else. So the Italian film industry. Yeah. They greatly need you. But I'm not, I don't, I'm not part of it. I know, I know. I, you I, are an outsider. I, I really am. You're I mean, a rebel. I have an Italian passport. Yes. I could have an Algerian passport because my mother is right. Algerian. Uh-huh. But I have, I am, I am not, I've never been part of the Italian industry ever. Tell me about that because, I mean, you're a great export. I don't, <laughs> I don't think they see me like that. Uh, here is a story. Like... In this cinema, first of all, cinema is an industrial process and, and reflects the, the, the geography of each country, right? So you have the industrial cinema, of, uh, the, the industry in France, in the UK, in Italy, in Spain, everywhere, and also here. But I personally felt that as a filmmaker, I needed to belong 
to the world of cinema at large, and I couldn't confine myself into the boundaries of in any given cinematography, cin cinemas, particularly the Italian, because it's a small industry. Resources are very limited. Yeah. Not only the financial resources are limited, and we got, I have to add something about that later, yeah. but also, honestly, like artistic resources are limited. Like for me, the, the number of actors I can have access to in order to embody the characters I have in my mind has to be as wide as possible. And mm -hmm. to limit myself, myself to the actors in the, in the Italian industry would be a bad predicament to be, find myself into. Lorenzo and I, your producer, we were talking about, it's just a sad state of affairs, especially after the pandemic exhibition there is crushed you know i was like hand of god beautiful movie why is this on netflix it's because that's i don't know what's become the nature of the beast the streamers are the biggest buyers of these of of, of these films outside and yet yeah when we did bones and all and i said to dave kajanik this movie had to be played by timothy chalamet mm -hmm. because i think he can make an amazing lee and timothy made uh, made it yeah and we all made in a very kind of like basic way to keep the cost controlled. Mm -hmm. We then financed the movie in one week in Italy through private equity, completely. And I said to everybody, you'll see, this movie is gonna have a major theatrical release. Right now, let's make it independently. Mm -hmm. You have a great script, you have a great star, and you have a good director, let's say. We made the movie, and only uh, eight months after we wrapped the movie, we sold the movie to MGM. Yeah. You know, things find their way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that uh, to be running very fast toward the easy solution is not the right answer for me. So what was the budget? Was it, was it around 20, 30? Below the line was 20. Okay, okay, and then what? What is next? Like you're finishing Challengers. Yeah, I'm. I'm waiting for the wonderful Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross to give me the new music, the new score they did for this. We'll see that next year. Yeah, yeah. For okay, sure. and then what's next after that? Is it the Audrey Hepburn biopic with Rooney? I'm waiting for the script. Okay. On that note, I mean, yes, directors will always have fingerprints. And I love Rooney. Oh, she's she's amazing. She's she's so humorous. She's so lovely. She has a sense of humor that I love, and uh, she's a great actress too. But on the on the subject of scripts, you do you get your hands dirty with writing or anything like that? It seems it. I th <laughs> I love my writers dearly. Uh -huh. I love Dave Kajanik. I love. Yeah. Justin Kuritskis, I love Michael Mitnick. Um, I love my writers. I, uh, Barbara Alberti, love all of them. I think that direct writers are like director of photography. They are like uh, camera operators. They are like costume designers. They are, they can be amazing artists who needs to be directed. Because a script doesn't exist. It's not a movie. A script is a script. So the idea that you have authorship only if you write the script it's ki kind of silly also given 
the knowledge we have about the politics of auteurs after the new waves in, in the world and in France in particular that stated light, rightly so, righteously so, that the greatest author ever was Hitchcock, who basically never wrote the script. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What I mean, we define his movies as he created a canon. Hitchcockian comes with a very specific idea of what is cinema, and yet he has never written anything or Howard Hawks, right? It's just funny because it's an anomaly now not to see a director co by line. Even even young indie directors, they it makes they'll get me their... furious because yeah. it's about the banality of having to put your stamp on it or to showcase your sense of powers or yeah. I don't know what is it like a competition? You direct. I, I have. A, I mean, like. Yeah. It's you, an ego thing. you direct your writers. Like you read the script, you write the script with them, and you say, "I don't think this scene should run for like 15 pages in the conversation." You don't need that amount of time to get to the place where these characters tell each other what you want them to say and what you want them to say. Because for me, what they're saying now isn't exactly met with their behavior. And you talk and you spend time with your writers. Time means a lot of time, and then you make them be better mm-hmm. and they they do the changes because that's their job yeah and, and like the idea that you have to put your stamp on your writing of course there are great writer director quentin yeah. tarantino but that's for me an exception not a standard we need more directors who are able to direct writers is there a dream project that you have in your back pocket that you haven't really talked about yeah, yeah, sure. There is many. I I mean I don't think I will do it because too many movies have been made about this kind of nostalgia of the self. But I've been working forever and I couldn't get to where I wanted yet on a movie called The African Child about my upbringing in Ethiopia in the 70s during the last years of the Haile Selassie Empire and the unraveling of the coup d'etat that uh, made the, the, the country uh, becoming a dictatorship and uh, uh, this, uh, the greatest and oldest empire of, the, of humankind uh, finished. Uh, too many filmmakers made movies about their, uh, adoles- their childhood, so I think I'm going to withdraw from it because it's uh, too much immodesty. But your story is completely different from the Fablemans and from our... I haven't seen the Fablemans. I want to see that, though. Yeah, but I mean, you, I mean, you have a very, very different story to tell. I pitched that to my writer, Francesca Manieri, who was working on it with me. Uh-huh. We should think about uh, uh, the river meets uh, Brief Encounter meets The Last Emperor. Uh, <laughs> and she looked at me with blank eyes. She's like, duh. What's which, that? Well, <laughs> I'm not going to do it. And then she said to me, you can't say African child because that's appropriation. And I said, I'm actually African because my mother is Algerian. Uh-huh. The, the reason why I bring this up is because I know Bertolucci is, is one of your mentors. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, what he did with Last Emperor back in the day was just shooting in China at a time when no Western country was shooting in China. You know what he said, Bernard, about that movie? He said that that was the movie about the subconscious of his his childhood. Because if you read the beautiful uh, canon of his father, the great poet Attilio Bertolucci, Mm -hmm. 
I have I have his book at home. Please read that. Yeah. You'll find the poem in which he describes little Bernardo climbing down a big stairwell as if he was owning it and being the oh, emperor it. of it. Oh, and wow. what how how the movie opens with the little Pugier yeah. going down the stairwell and owning China in that. So that's as personal as you can think of. Oh, wow. And yet it's the history of China. Such a great movie. Celebrated by Hollywood. Nine Oscars. I mean, it night. was just monumental. I mean, monumental. Like, the, I, I day was and era. up all night watching that, that broadcast, I remember. I would never forget. And Two, David Byrne won. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and Ryuichi Sakamoto and Kong Su. Yes, yeah, yeah. And I, 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 because we're in Hollywood, that one and The Silence of the Lambs winning five Oscars, those two were my favorite broadcast of an Oscar ceremony ever. I want to talk about, um, I'm taking a left turn here. Left turn. I want to talk about with you, and again, another subject of Bertolucci, Once Upon a Time in the West. Yeah. What an, I mean, you look at the credits on that. Story I mean, it, it, by, like, how does that, what is that? Story by Bernardo Bertolucci and Dario Argento and Sergio Leone. Yeah, even two Italian filmmakers, that movie, that, I mean, that's just like the conflict, that's like all forces of the universe coming together in and, and, and a brilliant movie throughout, you know, and the sound and everything and, and Henry Fonda playing against that, type. That, that is exactly what I was telling you before. Cinema cannot know, knowing no boundaries cannot have geography. It took like three Two Roman write, directors, writers, and one Parma director, writer, to make a movie that was about the mythology of the West, a Western in America, shot in it in Europe. You can't really narrow things to their geography, their passport. What is your next project? If it's not Audrey, if it's not Audrey Hepburn, <laughs> are you still deciding? Is there like two I, or three I know things? what I'm making, but I'm not going to say it. <laughs> Okay. I actually know exactly what I'm making. I know when I'm making it, and I'm going to tell you off the records after okay. we close the okay, mics. Great. Okay, super dude. Actually, Bumble doesn't want me to say it, so I'm not going to say it. All right. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call Podcast on Deadline. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro. Make sure you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode.